Good morning. Today's reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 23, beginning from verse 1 through 20. Uh, you may follow along on pages 4 and 5 of the bulletin. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside, her dead, beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, listen to me and intercede with, intercede with me, and intercede with me Ephron, son of Zohan, Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Mechpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephraim the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I will give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed before the people of the land and said to Ephraim in their hearing, listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the land of the field, accepted from me, so I can bury my dead there. Ephraim answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. But what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephraim's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. Four hundred shekels of silver according to the weight among the merchants. So Ephraim's field in Mechpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of, his, of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Mechpelah near Mamre, that is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. La lectura de hoy viene del libro de Génesis, capítulo 23, versículos 1 al 20. Sara vivió 127 años y murió en Kiriat Arba, es decir, en la ciudad de Hebrón, en la tierra de Canaán. Abraham hizo duelo y lloró por ella. Luego se retiró de donde estaba la difunta y fue a proponer a los hititas lo siguiente. Entre ustedes, yo soy un extranjero. No obstante, quiero pedirles que me vendan un sepulcro para enterrar a mi esposa. Los hititas respondieron, Escúchenos, señor. Usted es un príncipe poderoso entre nosotros. Sepulte a su esposa en el mejor de nuestros sepulcros. Ninguno de nosotros le negará su tumba para que pueda sepultar a su esposa. 
Abraham se levantó e hizo una reverencia ante los hititas del lugar y les dijo, «Si les parece bien que yo entierre aquí a mi difunta, les ruego que intercedan ante Efrón, hijo de Sohar, para que me venda la cueva de Macpela, que está en los lindarios de su campo». Díganle que me la venda en su justo precio, y así tendré entre ustedes un sepulcro para mi familia. Efrón el Etita, que estaba sentado allí entre su gente, le respondió a Abraham en presencia de todos ellos, y de los que estaban por la puerta de su ciudad. No, señor mío, escúcheme bien. Yo le regalo el campo, y también la cueva que está en él. Los hijos de mi pueblo son testigos de que yo se los regalo. Entierre usted a su esposa. Una vez más, Abraham hizo una reverencia entre la gente de ese lugar, y en presencia de los que estaban allí, dijo a Efrón, «Escúcheme, por favor, yo insisto en pagarle el precio justo del campo. Acéptelo usted, y así podré enterrar a mi esposa». Efrón le contestó a Abraham, «Señor mío, escúcheme, el campo vale cuatrocientos monedas de plata». ¿Qué es eso entre nosotros? Vaya tranquilo y entierre a su esposa. Abraham se puso de acuerdo con Efrón y en presencia de los hititas le pagó lo convenido, 400 monedas de plata, moneda corriente entre los comerciantes. Así fue como el campo de Efrón, que estaba en Macpela, cerca de Mamre, pasó a ser propiedad de Abraham, junto con la cueva y todos los árboles que estaban dentro de los límites del campo. La transacción se hizo en presencia de los hititas y de los que pasaban por la puerta de su ciudad. Luego Abraham sepultó a su esposa Sara en la cueva del campo de Macpela, que está cerca de Mamre, es decir, en Hebrón, en la tierra de Canaán. De esta manera, el campo y la cueva que estaban en él dejó de ser de los hititas y pasó a ser propiedad de Abraham para sepultarla. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this chance to hear from you the voice of God through your word. And so we pray for inward attentiveness, but we pray that your word would wash over us like water to our soul. Do that by your spirit. Give us life. Challenge us. Specific areas of our lives, God, that you want to awaken to your reality, the reality of your son, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are nearing the end of our study of the life of Abraham. Uh, we'll be finishing this up in two weeks. And some of you that I've talked to that have been with us the entire summer who've been walking story by story together through the life of Abraham have actually mentioned to me how it's, it's almost started to feel like Abraham's an old friend, right? We've, we've been through a lot together, Abe, right? And uh, sort of tracking through the narrative and how good it's been to study the story in detail and beginning to see a character like Abraham as a real person. We're seeing his struggles in our struggles and our struggles in his struggles and sort of working through real life together as the Bible presents real life to us, living by faith in real life. And there's nothing more real 
than the struggle we encounter in today's passage, which is the struggle of dealing with death and loss. Abraham has lost his wife, Sarah. She's died in a city, we're told, called Kiriath Arba, later known in Israel as Hebron. And we're told that Sarah was 127 years old when she died. Of course, the world was a different place 4,000 years ago when they walked this earth, and so it's not surprising that people would have lived a little bit longer back then. But 127 years. And the thing about that number, looking at it from Abraham's perspective was that 127 years meant that Abraham and Sarah were together in marriage, in friendship, in life, together for over 100 years. I imagine they were just decades past that point when couples start to look like each other. You know, when they are just gazing into each other's faces so much and mimicking each other's uh, expressions and picking up each other's mannerisms where they start to look like each other, it happens far beyond that point. Together for over a hundred years every day, can you imagine that sense of loss? Recently, Paula actually got very ill and had to be rushed to the emergency room. And I got the phone call from her, actually, and you could hear it in her voice trying to calm me down and reassure me that she was fine. And in the end, she was fine. She is doing well. Uh, But in that moment, you just don't know. And I got to admit, the thoughts that go through your head, my head, in that time, fears of loss, fears of tragedy, fears of, oh, no. And I just can't imagine the sense of loss, that feeling even after our short time of being, relatively short time of being married together, what would it be like after a hundred years? It really is a remarkable thing that an entire chapter of the book of Genesis in the story of Abraham is dedicated to this process he goes through of mourning his wife's death. The Bible treats this kind of loss as significant, as worth pausing and pondering, and so it's good for us to pause and ponder this as well, the importance of grieving well. Three quick lessons that this story offers us. Number one, take the time to grieve your losses. Abraham's a man of faith, right? He's the big stud, the hero of the Old Testament, walking with God. His nickname is the friend of God. He's left everything, everything to follow God's call, his hometown, his family, his identity, his security. And he's lived in radical obedience to God, even to the point we saw last week of being willing to sacrifice his own son. So it might be easy to think that Abraham should be above pain and above sadness. Death can't bring me down. You know, sadness, I have no such word in my vocabulary. No, no, no. Look at verse 2. Abraham went to mourn Sarah and to weep over her. This is 
the life of faith. And when in verse 3 it says, Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife, it's telling us that he spent a good amount of time by her lifeless body. The first lesson, maybe the hardest lesson about grieving our disappointments and our losses, friends, is that you have permission to do it. Indeed, you must grieve your losses. Whether if it might be the death of a loved one, as was the case of Abraham this week, just thinking a lot about the families of the Colorado movie theater tragedy, the family members of the shooting victims and their loss and that grieving process, nationally even, altogether. But we don't even need to go that far, do we? Even right here in this community, brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors among us in Grace Meridian Hill, just stricken by a lot of death in the last year or two, almost strangely so. Parents, grandparents, children, siblings, neighbors. This invitation to grieve to grieve, to grieve. The Bible also recognizes the importance of grieving other kinds of disappointment and loss as well beyond just the loss of human life, like the loss of a job, or to grieve the loss of a friend, saying goodbye to someone that moves out of town. Watching the Olympics on TV recently, I don't know if you've been watching a lot of this, wonderful stories of glory and victory, but also terrible, heartbreaking stories of disappointment and frustration as well. Someone that's been working so hard for four years, in some cases their entire lives, and they don't make it. They don't achieve what they want to. Maybe some of you feel like some of those disappointed Olympians in the workplace or in relationships or in other areas of life. You've been working so hard, giving your whole life to something, and it just doesn't come through. Grieving those losses as well. Or maybe grieving the loss of your youth and the aging process. Or the loss of a parent in the divorce of a mom and a dad. Or maybe it's the closing of the door on a part of your career dream and work opportunities. I remember having to do that together with Paula when she moved down here to the Washington area when it meant a significant change in where she was headed in her design field. Having to work through that and even share tears together over that kind of loss. Or maybe you're a victim of child abuse Or some other kind of deep tragedy and pain a long time ago. The loss of childhood innocence or the loss of a sense of safety that can come about by some assault on your physical safety, maybe even in recent years. The loss of independence that can come, that feeling when you get married or maybe when you have your first baby. The loss of trust when someone betrays you. The loss of a home, maybe literally to a foreclosure Or maybe just emotionally. Like if you grew up here in the district, maybe you're feeling the loss of the neighborhood that you grew up in. 
Even if you're glad for some of the changes that have taken place, you know it's just a different place. It's not what it used to be. Being able to grieve that as well, or to do that even corporately as a church community. Maybe a small group, a neighborhood group that you're a part of changes drastically because some people move out. Or maybe one day, for various circumstantial reasons, you need to close down your group, being able to grieve that. Or maybe one day soon, Lord willing, we'll move from this building to another building. And to be able to say goodbye and to count all the ways in which we've been blessed here and to grieve that change as well. Or maybe, speaking of change, maybe you've been here from the very beginning of Grace Meridian Hill and there's a sense of longing for the days when we were 20 people sitting around staring at each other. And maybe you're saying it just isn't in some ways what it used to be. It's not a bad thing what it is. It's a wonderful thing. But to grieve that loss as well. So many different areas of life, friends, where we experience death, disappointment, and loss. Do you pause? Do you take the time to pay attention and to feel it in your heart, to feel it together in community, and to mourn that loss? If you want to put it more simply, friends, it's okay to be sad. In fact, it's more than just okay. Sadness can actually be a form of godliness. Did you know that? It can be a form of godliness when sadness expresses the heart of God. Did you know that God is not only and always happy all the time? At least not in the superficial way that we imagine happiness to be. Did you know that God sometimes gets sad too? In Genesis 6, a few chapters back, when God saw how great the evil of the human heart had become, we're told that the Lord was grieved and his heart was filled with pain. Maybe surprising language. In John 11, Jesus, when he loses his dear friend Lazarus, He dies and he's buried and Jesus finally arrives. He looks around and even though he knows in a few short minutes he's going to raise him back to life, he takes the time to weep. John 11.35, Jesus wept. Growing in faith is trusting God as you see Him more and more. And then as you see Him more and more, you become yourself more and more like Him. A grieving God is the God of faith. And so we too must learn to grieve. But we don't like it. And so we tend to run. We tend to hide or stuff it down until those events, those events of sorrow and sadness start to gather up into our souls, sometimes even weighing us down or paralyzing us like heavy stones or like a straitjacket. You know what Novocaine is, right? The stuff that you go and get put in your mouth when you go to the dentist. I remember when I was a kid, the very first time I ever was introduced to Novocaine, I was so fascinated by it. I was young and I couldn't feel anything and I found it kind of funny that I would drool and not even know that I was drooling and staring in the mirror and I would scratch my cheek and I couldn't feel a thing so I'd scratch it again and harder and harder and I couldn't feel a thing until two hours later when all the sensation came back. I couldn't believe how much my cheek hurt because of all that scratching 
Now that the sensation had come back, Novocaine numbing our senses so that the dentist can do good work on us. Sometimes, you know, Christians give the impression that the gospel is supposed to work like spiritual Novocaine. You know, like if you're quote-unquote filled with the Spirit, that you're just numb to the pains and sadnesses of life. Or we assume that sadness is a mark of immaturity. And so every time it comes by into our lives, we just try to quickly spin brokenness in life as a good thing. You know, everything happens for a reason. We just shoot that out. Or we cover over the hard situations in life. A quick praise the Lord anyway, and you try to move on as quickly as possible. And I think we do that for a couple of reasons. I wonder if this is true for you. First, I I think sometimes we try to move past our grief so quickly because we're nervous about the lack of control that we might have with our emotions and our circumstances if we actually dare to go there. Especially if it's a place of deep woundedness in our past. To feel the sadness, to feel the anger, to feel the depression, to actually revisit doubts about God and to wonder, if I start weeping, will I ever stop? If I feel badly, will I ever feel better? Or maybe I think we do this because we feel responsible for the pain in our lives Well, I got fired. That was real loss. But I got fired from my job because of a mistake that I made. And so I don't really feel like I have a right to embrace the sorrow. And that's just not true. There are certain things you might be responsible for, but you still ought to go through the process of embracing that grief and that loss. Or thirdly, I think simply, we just don't like feeling vulnerable. We just don't like feeling weak and we like to pretend that we're emotionally bulletproof. So we try to put on airs like, hey, I don't really get affected by these things. And again, we carry them on the inside of us, undealt with and unresolved. And all this prevents us from walking honestly with God, walking honestly before other people, and even sometimes before ourselves. And I wonder if it's a case for you, but I do think it's true. I know it was true. It has been true. It still is true in a lot of areas of my life. But how much we can be spiritually stuck because we have not adequately grieved an event or an incident in our past. One of my spiritual heroes and personal mentors, Scotty Smith, who's a pastor of many years in the Tennessee area, tells his story in his ministry, but also in some of the books that he's written about how at the age of 50, he went through this crisis, which was a life-giving crisis, but a crisis nonetheless, when he realized that he never got a chance to truly grieve the tragic death of his mother, a car accident killed her suddenly when he was 12 years old. He came home, was told the news, and was told never to show another tear for it again. And now at 50, at 50, thinking through it, 38 years later, and finally starting to realize 
how much throughout his life he had been coping and turning to other things to medicate that wound that was not properly grieved over. Turning to overeating, turning to alcohol, turning to music, turning to an overachieving, driven spirit, turning even to theological arrogance, all these things that he was using to make himself feel more comforted or more secure or more consoled. And oh, if we would have the grace to do that important exercise, to go back, to go back, to rehash, and maybe with a counselor, certainly in community, and to grieve those events even in our past. Friends, are there significant events in your past that maybe you have not properly grieved, but so quickly have run from and moved away from? Or even perhaps a loss, an area of disappointment that you're facing today that you're refusing to embrace. You might start by journaling. You might even write out, as some have advised to do, write out kind of a timeline and marking out different significant events of sorrow and disappointment in your life. Events of loss and just tracing out those things and see how much it's shaped who you are. And it has shaped us. We're broken people being remade as whole people by the grace of God. But sometimes the greatest doorway for the grace of God to rush in through is the doorway of grief. Do you know that? Take the time to grieve your losses. Number two, lesson number two, give your loss a proper burial. A proper burial. We see in this story Abraham spending so much energy trying to find an adequate space to lay his wife's dead body in. He would not take the simple temporary tomb, a cave that was being offered to him, sort of on loan. And this is why we have this long extended passage, really from verse 3 all the way down to the end of the passage, where Abraham is serving as real estate negotiator, trying to find some way to provide his wife, Sarah, with a more permanent place to lay her body, a more permanent honoring burial ground, refusing to cut corners, doing the job well. And this is why, of course, in the case of losing a person that you love, their lives being lost, it's so proper to have funeral services, to have remembrances, to take the time to eulogize them, to be with family and friends and tell stories. There's that healing effect that's so necessary. Again, it takes time. It takes relationships. It takes honesty. It takes tears. But that's the way healing comes about in our moments of loss. We know that, or do we, in the case of death, literal death. But I think this idea also applies to what you might call sort of a, a metaphorical proper burial for all kinds of areas of loss and disappointment. To take the time to properly honor and memorialize what you lost. 
appreciated so much this past week having a conversation with a person who had been longing to get sort of a dream job in another city and has been chasing after that for months and months, even years. And it just has not worked out. And all the frustration and the frustrated prayers even until more recently coming to the point of being able to say, you know, actually, for all that God's been doing in my life, I'm not sure that's my dream anymore. Things seem to have shifted a little bit. But I loved hearing the person say, I really wanted that job. It was a good opportunity, and I was crushed that it didn't work out. To to honor and to even memorialize that thing that you lost, to say it was a good thing or it is a good thing, to acknowledge the blessing of God even if it wasn't something that was delivered to you in your life. Or a friend that leaves town and you have to say goodbye. To have a chance to remember what God has done. To be able to say to yourself, to sit on it, I'm really going to miss that person. Because that's how valuable they were and are to me. And so I can't help noticing here, Dana is leaving. Didn't get a chance to pray for you a couple of weeks ago. Who sang for us, part of our music team, so well. Such a blessing to have her up here. And just ways in which even being able to say goodbye to dear members of our community, the ways that we try to pray for our departing members and to say not just so long, have a great life, but to say you were vital to us, this hurts us, but we trust God is going with you as part of our memorializing. Sorry, it's not, you know, the end, but I know it sounds like that. But part of our grieving well the loss of dear people like Dana, which I need to learn to do because I'm the one who just wants to slip out the back door and not say goodbyes and sort of get awkward and kind of, you know, high five and leave and sort of pretend you never saw each other, that kind of thing. There's something here to work through a proper, patient, intentional, deliberate acknowledgement of what was good and honorable and to give that thing that we're letting go of, or that let go of us, that loss, a proper burial. And to do that, not burying our losses in the recesses of our hearts, we just talked about that earlier, not burying them in the land of regret, or the land of unfulfilled hopes and dreams, and therefore the land of frustrations, but in the land of promise and hope, which is exactly where Abraham put Sarah. And this brings us to the final point. This third lesson, see your loss as an opportunity for new life. See your loss as an opportunity for new life. The bulk of this passage is all about Abraham working with the local Canaanites trying to find a place to put his wife. You hear the language in verse 3 when Abraham describes himself as an alien and stranger. All I have, he would say, is a green card. I don't have rights to ownership of land here in the way that you all might. But I'm looking for a way, a permanent place to place my Sarah. 
The Hittites initially offered him a tomb that he could use, but not permanent property. And so Abraham goes back and he asks them for something more permanent, more substantial, and he even offers to pay the full price. Verse 8, that's why he says, intercede with Ephraim, the son of Zohar, on my behalf, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me. He's looking for something more permanent. And so Ephraim offers him the field as a gift, And Abraham says, no, 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 not as a gift. Let me buy it from you. He insists on purchasing it. Verse 13, I will pay for the price of the field. Verse 15, it was 400 shekels of silver. Sensitive, careful scholars have also looked at this passage. I'm going somewhere here. Hang on for a second. Have looked at this passage and have told us that there is clear technical terminology used all throughout this passage showing that there is a legal transaction that's going on. An ancient binding verbal contract that's called an ancient dialogue contract. They didn't write things down. They spoke out legal contracts one to another, and this passage follows the exact form. Which is why you have here in verse 8 and 13 and 15 the language of being in the presence of other people. There are witnesses surrounding them. In the hearing of all the Hittites, verse 10, before the people of the land, or this language of listen to me, verse 8 and 13 and 15, listen to me. This is legal, technical language. The narrator even uh, includes this formal statement of agreement and payment in verse 16. This transfer of the property, describing the property, listing the witnesses. Twice the narrator notes that negotiations have taken place at the gate of the city, which in ancient times were the legal center of ancient Near Eastern cities. What is the point? Abraham has become the official, legal, irrevocable owner of this piece of property in the land of Canaan. Which means if you've been tracking with the story from the very beginning when God called Abraham to follow him and he said, I'm going to bless you, not because you deserve it, because I always operate on the principle of grace. It's a gift to you, even despite you. I want to give you myself, my life, my blessing. I want to give you children, a nation, a sense of significance, and I want to give you land. The promised land, everything you see in front of you. Here, walk with me and encircle the land, a place you can call home, a place that's your inheritance. God said it out to him. He said, I promise you, I'll give it to you. Abraham has not had it yet until now. The first little square inch of the promised land that Abraham has ever owned, received from God, yes, through these negotiations, came how? Through the death of his wife. That it was through the occasion of loss that God has begun to deliver on his promise of life. And this is always 
how the God of the Bible works. Just like how one day in the future, 2,000 years after Abraham's day, there would be another cave, another grave, another moment of great loss, when Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, would have died, having been punished for the sins of all of those who would embrace him, the justice of God poured out upon him so that we might be loved and forgiven and that we might know God. This Jesus who was buried and died and yet died in order that he might rise again to life. Because death always precedes resurrection. And our losses so often are given to us in order to produce new life. And this is precisely why we need to pay attention to our grief and our loss and our disappointments and our death because you just don't know what God might be up to. You just don't know what kind of massive promise Like with Abraham, he might just be starting to give you a down payment on in what might very well have been the very worst day of your life. The pain of loss, the doorway to life. This we can see in our own lives as we grieve well the ways in which our grief grows us personally. A vital component to spiritual maturity. There's a way in which grief gives life to us by enlarging our souls. The ways in which it actually makes us more full people, more substantial people that are really in touch with life in the world. I mean, have you ever talked to a person that you feel like just has never shed a tear about anything and sort of feels like they live in Candyland, which is not the real world that we live in, which is not the neighborhood that we live in, versus a person that maybe is still persevering well, but you know from the lines on their face and maybe from the creases on their hands that they've been through a lot, but they know life well. Grief enlarges our souls if we would take the time to allow our grief to deepen and to settle within us. But it also grows us in our view of other people as well. Grief enables me to love others and identify with their pain with much more compassion. Because you can't love a person in a time of need unless you know you've been in a place of need yourself as well. And especially when you have the hope of knowing that God has met you in some unique way. And even if their circumstances might be different from yours, you could say with testimony and witness, God has been good to me. God has been my Jehovah Jireh, my provider, as we saw last week. God can be good to you as well. In a different way, perhaps, but our God is the same God. Henry Nouwen, great author and pastor in the past, he has said and written, there is no compassion without many tears. Isn't that true? 
The ways in which our embracing of our grief teaches us how to love people and serve people better, especially those who are under a constant state of grief and loss here in the neighborhood. The poor, the marginalized, the abused, the depressed, the afflicted. The ways in which grief gives us new life, even through our loss, in our view of God as well. Where we begin to see a God of suffering. The God of the Bible. Where you actually start to understand a little bit more of all that Jesus gave for us and the life that He lived, the life He laid down, the death He died, and the life that He picked up in His resurrection when we start to experience sorrow ourselves. Jesus, who was in Isaiah 53 described as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. If you don't know grief... You can't know Jesus. A strange way, perhaps, to put it, but Nicholas Wolterstorff, a Yale professor and theologian, wrote this as he was reflecting on the loss of his son, 25-year-old son, who died in a mountain climbing accident. He wrote, Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. It's through my tears that I see God more and I know God more. God who suffers not only with me, but for me. A God who entered into this world and experienced pain and loss, though He did not have to, but He did it so that He might give us hope and resources and power and encouragement and comfort and strength in all of our losses so that none of our losses might be ultimate if we are in Him. This was Abraham's ultimate hope. This can be ours as well. Life-giving losses. A totally different perspective that begins with taking the time to grieve, processing our grief, and putting together a proper burial of those losses. What can this look like in your life? Maybe something you're going through right now. Maybe something in your past. Maybe you're doing just fine, but living in the world that we live in, you'll incur this again someday soon. You'll need this, if not now, one day. Thank God that He gives it to us, teaching us how to grieve. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You're a God who meets us in the full range of our humanity, that You meet us even in our places of sorrow and hurt, in our grief. So we thank you for giving us some tools and resources, some perspective. We pray your kindness upon us. I pray especially for those that are deeply wounded or maybe angry, depressed, or hurting here today, sitting amongst us. Draw near to them, even now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song. It is well with my soul. Uh, This classic hymn that expresses uh, the brokenness of our hearts. Let's sing together.
don't you have a seat? We just have one final piece of our service that I'm excited to offer to you, and that's communion. Uh, have you ever been in a, a place of sorrow? Maybe things just aren't going well, or maybe you're weeping even, and you need someone to be there with you, and you really don't need them to say anything. You just want their presence just to be next to you, maybe give you a hug, something like that. Uh, This is kind of how the bread and wine and juice of communion works. This is God giving himself to us physically because he knows sometimes words in and of themselves fall short. So he says, you need comfort. You need to be reassured that I'm present. You need to be confident that I'm for you, that I love you, that I forgive you, that I am your savior, that I am redeeming your losses. I'm not just going to tell you, I'm going to give you something you can touch, something you can taste, something you can feel with all of your human physicality, bread, wine, juice, giving to you more of his son, Jesus, who died and rose again for you. So come forward with whatever needs and sorrows or afflictions or loss or disappointment or grief you have in your life, or maybe even something you need to believe on behalf of another person in your life, but come forward and receive more of Jesus. If you're not in the place of actually having embraced Jesus, maybe you're here as an explorer, investigator type. We love that you're here. It wouldn't be the right time for you to come, uh, so we just ask for you uh, to maybe reflect on the things that you've heard or use some of the prayers or some of the reflection questions in the bulletin. We just wouldn't want to 